With me in the SCANA studio today is Mark Smith, who is Distinguished Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. And Mark has written a very interesting new book entitled The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Now, Mark, that title is quite a grabber. If this is on a bookshelf in a bookstore, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, actually saying that gives me a sensory perception. Is that what you intended? Um, I wish I were clever enough uh, to have thought of the title. Um, This title comes from my editor at Oxford, and we went around the houses trying to best encapsulate what this book should be called. And my original stabs at it were fairly tedious. Such as? Oh, just a sensory history of the Civil War, which is a a rather large claim, but it didn't really capture the um, emotional impact that we were after here. I was going to say the texture. This title has a texture to it. It has grit. It has grit in the title, doesn't it? It feels. um, And so he came up with this, and all all credit to Tim Bent, who is a, a very talented editor. He showed it to me, and I said, Tim... That's the title. Okay. Before we get into the book, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. I guess our listeners can tell that you're not from Columbia, and I know your standard response is you're really from Spartanburg. Or Irma. It really depends on your perspective. Really. Okay. But but let's let's give them the real backstory. So I grew up uh, south of London. Uh, my father was a, a paratrooper in the British Army, and uh, we were stationed um, in Aldershot. And moved around a lot, as uh, army brats usually do. I ended up here uh, by chance. By no, no, one of your stops was in Berlin. You spent some youth in Berlin. I did. did. I spent a few years in Berlin in the 1970s as a, as a young child, um, right snug up against the Berlin Wall. I could see it from my bedroom window. Um, that base is no longer there, uh, but it was a joint British-American base. And I grew up learning really a great deal about American culture because the culture of the base was American. So I grew up watching Sesame Street and uh, watching American TV shows, going to an American school. I actually began my life saying XYZ and not XYZ. So I, I was exposed to America, or a little slice of America, at a great distance from America quite early on in my life. And then you got in touch with the University of South Carolina at some point. I did, and that was, um, as, as most good things in life are, um, accidental. It was suggested to me that I come to the university after my BA at the University of Southampton to study the American South. Given its location, its fabulous resources, and its faculty, it made a great deal of sense to me. And so I did, and I ended up staying, completing my PhD. Uh, then I went back to England for a few years to teach, and then was invited to apply for the position that I currently hold. Those of us who care about Southern history are delighted that you're back. And by the way, folks, he is an American citizen. I am an American citizen. That's right. Yeah. Sensory history. What is sensory history? I think the answer, or the simplest answer to it, is quite a complicated answer, but the simplest answer is that sensory history isn't really a field. It's a habit. It's a habit of historical inquiry in which the historian retunes his or her radar to become aware of the senses in the past, the way that people not just saw the world, but the way that people heard the world, the way that people smelled it, the tastes that informed their decisions, the touches. All of the non-visual senses are terribly important, not just to us, but they were to the people in the past as well. And I think that the, the job of the sensory historian is simply at very, a very basic level to resurrect those senses, to restore the full sensory texture of the past. At one point, since I am a fair bit older than you in the historical profession, only the written word counted. And there were those of us who thought about photographs and material culture to use that as part of documentation. And that was frowned upon back in the 1960s. That, you know, if it's not written, if it's not a document, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not any good. Well, uh, and I'm glad that we've moved beyond that point. Um, Well, I am too. I I will say this, though. um, Sensory history requires no special sources. It requires no particular source material. In fact, 
um, because it's a habit of inquiry, it relies simply on existing sources read differently. So you can you can read pretty much any source in the printed word, but also um, use photographs and things like this to that effect to recapture the the way that that smells and tastes and sounds function for people in the past. So when you go to the library. And if you're old-fashioned enough to use a card catalogue, you won't find an entry under smell or sound or taste or touch or even sight. So what you do is you read conventional sources, conventional letters, diaries, newspaper accounts, uh, with a new eye. And that eye should be always sensitive to non-visual evidence, uh, including visual evidence, but non-visual evidence especially, which is ironic since we're using our eyes to recapture uh, the non-visual uh, ways of understanding the past. Well, and that's because people read history. And when I, I, I mentioned earlier about not using material objects or photographs, history it was only through eye and what you saw mm-hmm. and you read. The word is what. That's right. That's right. And what, that that is a function of a way of understanding that we have inherited, I think, um, for lots of reasons. The enlightenment, and think of the word enlightenment, the, the stress on light, uh, privileged the eye. Um, it encouraged us to search for perspective because seeing is believing. Right? And that's where we get that idea that sight is the truth and the only source of truth from the Enlightenment. And there are lots of other things that developed prior to and after the Enlightenment that, that further privileged the eye. Uh, the very in- invention of print made us close our ears and use our eyes. Uh, the development of eye-empowering technologies, uh, telescopes, spectacles, photographs. All of these things started to elevate the eye in relationship to the other senses. And in a way, we inherited that privilege without really interrogating it. And before printing, it would have been the ear that would have been important because tradition, lore, everything was passed down verbally. That's right. That's right. And in, in societies with high illiteracy rates... The word had to be heard uh, so that information could be disseminated. Okay, let's get to the smell of battle and the taste of siege. In your introduction, and you and I have had this conversation before, reenacting a battle, a historic event, whether it's a medieval joust or whether it's the Battle of Gettysburg, you can't really recreate that particular situation. Why? Well, because history has happened. So, uh, and, and it really depends on the degree of authenticity you're trying to gain in reenactment. If you believe that you can re-experience Gettysburg as people at the time who fought it did, then you're probably going to be a bit, a little bit disappointed. Uh, you can get to a vague facsimile of that experience. Hey, I'm not going to take a bath. Well, that that's, for a week that that gets you halfway there, perhaps. Yeah, but but but, but it also, can't get you all the way there. But but also, I've been vaccinated. You have been vaccinated. You have the benefit of living in a refrigerated age, a a deodorized age. You have the benefit of electricity. So even when you go on the field to reenact at Gettysburg, the the drone of planes overhead, the the distant drone of cars. Uh, this is creating a different soundscape for you than it would have for the person fighting at Gettysburg at the time. Not to mention the monuments that are going to deflect or visually distract. or The, the visual, visual distraction. And then think about the accidents of history, the things that cannot be recreated, such as acoustic shadows. That is, uh, sounds that appear to come from one direction, but really emanated from the opposite direction. And that was simply a matter of weather, topography, and chance. You can't recreate that. That's a, a, an accident. That's, that's the caprice of history. Well, you know, and, and we both have friends who are reenactors, and they really try to do exactly everything. You know, they're very, the details of, of the uniform are meticulous. But as you pointed out, nobody actually goes through with the bayonet goring flesh. There, there, there are definite limits. And I think that most people who reenact do recognize those limits. But what I'm trying to do in this book at a certain level is to say to, under, to understand the experience of battle really requires us to look very carefully at the words and descriptions of the people who experienced it at the time. So, for example, you know, we have tens of thousands of dead and wounded at Gettysburg. I mean, this is slaughter. This is slaughter on a scale that's unprecedented. The technology of death outpaces the technology of burial. 
This means that in baking sun over three days... In July. In July, there are thousands of bodies bloating by the day, not just of men, but of horses too. In fact, you've calculated how many pounds of flesh, or, or at least horse flesh, was on the field at Gettysburg? Well, there has been some work done on this, and, and my, my, my debts are obvious to anybody who reads the book, but um, the, the estimate is about six million pounds of horse and human flesh um, by the end of that battle. So six million pounds of flesh that's decaying in the summer sun. Decaying, baking, the blood seeping into the soil, kind of scenting the very landscape. And those bodies could not be buried fast enough. And as a result um, of that scale of death, combined with the wind, combined with the atmosphere, Gettysburg started to reek. And it didn't reek for just one day after the battle or a week after the battle. It reeked for months after the battle. Its, its presence was palpable, perhaps as long as into the autumn. And while nobody knows whether or not Lincoln smelled Gettysburg when he gave the address, uh, it is possible that he, he, he did. People talk even today of if, you know, CSI or any of your murder mysteries, if a body's been in a room for a period of time, the odor literally seeps into clothing. Mm-hmm. If you just go in there into, into clothing, into the furniture, into the the wall, the fabric mm-hmm. of, the, of the structure. So you're saying that's part of what was Gettysburg. Was the, it continued to smell months after. Yeah, and I actually quite like your um, reference to fabric, um, and I, but I think there's also a metaphorical fabric here. That's the fabric of a nation that is decaying, and that that decay can be smelled. And Lincoln's job is to rescue that decay, to render this battle something noble and civilized. And yet it reeked of an age gone by. It reeked of a medieval past, a past that Americans thought they had escaped, uh, but that came back with full force courtesy of the smell of death. In the 1850s, we as a nation thought we were well on the way to modernization. And so, you know, we were beginning to have gas lights. We were beginning to have sewers. Not in the South, by the way. I mean, Charleston still had open open privies until the 20th century. So the the smell of Charleston was not always of pluff mud. No, no, it wasn't always pleasant. Um, But here's here's the difference. And you're entirely right that Americans in 1860, as this war was about to unfold, had convinced themselves that they were becoming modern, that they could control their environment. And that involved the control of sounds and smells and tastes and touches. And what this war did was expose that belief as an empty conceit because the war let loose the senses in a way that people hadn't experienced before. So while Charleston certainly stank and was rank and would be offensive to our noses in 1860, nobody and nobody had had smelt thousands of dead bodies before. This this stench was unprecedented in scale, and that's what was so stunning about it. And one more thing about Charleston, the reason that everybody had boot scrapers by the door is because of literally the tens of thousands of pounds of animal manure that was to horse and mule that was deposited on the streets every day. Yes, that's right. But that was just part of... That's part of life. That's part of life. That, that was the normal existence, the normal existence. And this really tells you, I think, how and why it's very difficult to recreate not just a Gettysburg, but daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, to authentically recreate that experience would require to re-inhale the scent of thousands of dead bodies, to, re- to re-scrape manure from your boots. And this is simply impractical it, yeah. and, and undesirable, frankly. In reading your book, and you were talking about our refrigerated age, everything we buy today has an expiration date on mm-hmm. it. Growing up, and even though we had refrigeration in the South, obviously, in the 20th century, although some people didn't believe that, you looked at a piece of, say, just say ham. How did it look or how did it smell? That's right. Your nose was a sentinel. Your nose was the expiration date. Yeah. If it, if it, if it even hinted of, of being a bit off, your nose would tell you. Mm-hmm. One of the really poignant things about the Civil War is that food was very scarce for lots of Southerners, particularly in some place like uh, Vicksburg, which was under siege. And their level of starvation was so great that the sentinel of smell proved to be irrelevant. 
that, in other words, they were so desperately hungry that even though it smelled rancid, even though what they were about to eat, their nose told them it was bad for them, they ate nonetheless. Well, let, let's go ahead and, and let's talk about the, the Vicksburg chapter because that is the taste of siege. Mm. And let's explore that a little bit further. So it's important to recognize what Vicksburg was prior to the siege and prior to the Civil War. And it's important to recognize what people in Vicksburg had, had access to in terms of their taste. So it's a relatively affluent southern city. It is extremely hierarchical, as one would expect in a slave society. And elite whites, and most whites generally, ate well and often. And you can tell this by looking at um, menus for for Vicksburg restaurants. You can tell by looking at the data contained in plantation diaries, what people ate. And it's not bad at all. Um, This is partly courtesy of the market revolution that brings different foods from different parts of the country to Vicksburg. And being on the Mississippi, of course, it it had better access than a lot of places. That's right. That's right. So in in a way, Vicksburg had its sort of culinary center. And they drank well. They had champagne and wine, as well as fresh water. And water is an important part of the story, too, as I'll explain in just a moment. So they ate well. The slaves ate less well, of course, and that's largely because there were stereotypes applied to slaves that they didn't deserve good food, that they couldn't discern good food. And so the slave diet was more impoverished than the white diet in Vicksburg. And critically, what people ate was also part of their understanding of their own aesthetic taste. So taste works both as gustatory, i.e. what you eat literally, but also as a reflection of your standing in society. Do you have good taste? Uh, Are you civilized? So we begin with that as our platform, and then we fast forward into the siege itself, which lasts 47 days. And during the siege, you see a general sort of denigration of the palate in which people no longer have access to those foods. Grant has, has cordoned off this city, and it's extremely difficult to get any fresh food in It's extremely difficult to get any fresh water in, and they rely principally on their own wells. But they're going to run out at some point, and the number of people in Vicksburg has increased enormously. By the end of this siege, we have elite white southerners paying a dollar for a rat if they can find the rat. They run out of rats. The dogs become scarce. The mules become scarce. Horses become scarce. There are examples of children eating their own pet birds. Mm-hmm. So a, small, a little girl had to eat her own pet bird because she was so hungry. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, bear in mind that these folks are now digging tunnels into the soil around Vicksburg, caves. They become cave dwellers. This is to protect them from the daily and nightly onslaught of the shells from Grant. So what we have here is a proud people being reduced to eating rats. And not just eating rats, but eating like animals, living like animals, scurrying into their caves, into a distant past almost. Uh, Light becomes precious. Air becomes precious. This is a revolution for these people. Their palate is now humiliated. They're eating like slaves. And that's a profound feeling. And that's not by accident either, because a siege is designed to humiliate and starve. And that's precisely what Grant wanted to do. And that's precisely what Grant achieved. And, of course, in addition to changing the palate, the noise of the siege, the constant bombardment, because I have seen that in, in, in diaries, and, and Winston Groom in his story of Vicksburg, a very good book, as you, as you know, he mentions the recipes for rat. And, and, and by the way, that was not limited to Vicksburg. You mentioned the story of the young girl eating her canary. There's, that happened in Columbia when the preacher was coming to Sunday dinner and there was no chicken available and the pet canary went into the stew. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you're entirely right. Um, you know, this, this level of sort of palate denigration of starvation was not peculiar to Vicksburg. And you could find it in Richmond where there were riots, bread riots, sort of fundamental riots. And, and bear in mind, you know, Americans simply weren't used to this. The, the, the great ages of famine happened in Europe, not in this, this land of plenty. They were not accustomed to the idea of famine. This came as a shock to people, and they were, they were largely unprepared both physically and psychologically 
for a moment in which they they had to eat things they had never imagined eating. In some cases, the making do of particularly foodstuff and clothing has been a little bit romanticized. I mean, as if this is, you know, look how wonderful it was. The folks who went through that didn't necessarily think how wonderful it was. If you talk, read, you know, Ella LeConte's diary, and they pulled the loom out of the attic or the garage or wherever it was, and they were making Lindsay Woolsey underwear, and that wasn't like the fancy imported drawers that she had been used to wearing. As is the case with many wars, and you find this in particular, the sort of romanticization in the Second World War in England, too. You know, we, we had to endure hardship, but we came through. And all of, the, all of that is true. But at the time, people did not view their starvation through the lens of nostalgia. They did not view having to wear very uncomfortable clothes, rasping against skin that was not used to it with any sense of romanticism. This was arduous. Uh, war was hell. And war was hell in a sensory fashion. People felt it very keenly um, in ways that they hadn't felt it before. Well, I have seen recipes for, quote, coffee made from uh, burnt corn, mm-hmm. uh, actually ground up daylily roots, which I think are poisonous, but I've, you know, I've uh, parched daylily. I mean, all, all of these substitutes. And, yeah, it sounds Except, I think the the first person to really deal with it and say, you know, this wasn't all that romantic, of it because it was always, well, Aunt so and so managed mm-hmm. to dig up the the uh, smokehouse floor and they boil the salt and yeah, they'd gotten salt, but they'd gotten dirt and grit and whatever else with 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 that. But Ersatz in the Confederacy, one of the first studies by a South Carolina historian back in the nineteen nineteen fifties talked about this very openly about what life was like, particularly for the home front. And it wasn't a fiddle-dee-dee, Scarlett O'Hara kind of existence. And and I I think that's a a point well taken. Um, I mean, even if you think of just Colombia, you think of Sherman coming through Colombia, and just think of the, the very basic impact that that had. Just in terms of vision, and just because I'm dealing with the other senses doesn't mean that vision isn't important. But prior to Sherman, we had vertical, straight, proud buildings. After Sherman, we had lots of jagged, rough, destroyed buildings. Glass and windows were shattered. And that created a different soundscape, too, because the wind howled in grotesque ways. The burning of Columbia altered not just the way it looked, but the way it smelled. The way it sounded. The way it sounded. People talk about the sound of the... It roared. And and there there are a number of accounts of after the burning of Columbia, the silence. Mm-hmm. Yes, not, yes. N- not even church bells. That's right. Oh well, I think this is a very important point. Um, this is also true of of places like Charleston, where in the antebellum period, church bells were critical for marking out God's time, market time, curfews. Uh, but of course, during the war, the bells were either taken down or taken down and melted for cannon. Well, St. Michael's bells were sent up here for safekeeping, for safekeeping right. and they were burned on the state house grounds. Right. <laughs> but not every bell made it out, and they were often reconfigured to fight the war. So the very sound marks, the very soundscape of the antebellum period were absent by 1865. And then your point about the silence of Columbia, I think, is very telling. Think about what that silence meant. When settlers first came to colonial America, they they commented on the howling wilderness. And that was the sound of uncivilization to them. But it was always punctuated by deeply disconcerting moments of silence. And in a way, silence was most frightening because you, you had no sound marks of civilization. When Sherman leaves Columbia, that silence is crushing for people. Gone are the the regular, familiar sounds of the city. And in that silence is a humiliation. All of those hundreds of years of building civilization have just gone. At one fell swoop, they've disappeared. And part of their job is to rebuild the, the sounds of their society. The hum of industry has to be reintroduced to Colombia because it has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Mark, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Mark Smith about his latest book, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. When Sherman 
was in Colombia and right after the war, there were a number of photographs taken, and you've seen those. And I guess 20 years ago, I was talking to a group of cadets from the French Military Academy. They were in Colombia. And I showed that slide, and their reaction was this reminded them of their home villages or towns after World War II. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How the landscape had totally right. it's it was a forest of chimneys mm-hmm. nicely put. I was uh, lucky enough to be in London last year at a conference at the Imperial War Museum, mm-hmm. and that conference was on the first world war, but they asked me to open up the conference by talking about the Civil War and the number of parallels uh, between the Civil War and the first world war uh, were quite pronounced. Mm-hmm. And lots of them had to do with the sensory experience of war. Some of them had to do with the visual experience of war, in which vertical lines were were rendered horizontal, in which uh, buildings that had been painstakingly built over the years were suddenly jagged, uneven, not symmetrical. Think about how we look at the world. We like symmetry. We are creatures of the Enlightenment. We like balance. And to see something that isn't balanced, that had been balanced before, to see something that is no longer vertical, that you're familiar with, is is a, a terrifying view because it tells you that history has just been wiped out. And if you think about recent developments, uh, think about the 9-11 attack on the, on the World Trade Center. I think what people take away from that, and there are many messages from that experience, but it's the jaggedness the, the reduction of so, something so proud and tall to mere rubble. And if you think about that jagged image that uh, comes up time and time again, you, you, you can see the, 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 the raw steel bent in ways that it's not supposed to be there. Just seeing it tells you that something important has happened. And I think that is also true of the pictures that depict and capture the reality of Colombia after Sherman's left. Well... Taste. We, we, we talk about how how that how that changed. Your opening chapter, I found absolutely fascinating about the sound of secession. The sounds of secession. So, it didn't begin with uh, secession just because it was first. Although certainly it makes sense to do this chronologically, and I do tend to. I wanted to give a sense of how this war was heard before it properly unfolded. And to do that, there's only one place that you can listen to, and that's Charleston. Mm -hmm. So I tried to describe Charleston, the regular sounds of Charleston, before, say, the election of Lincoln in November. And those sounds are fairly predictable, like they were for most southern cities, the sounds of Mm -hmm. slavery. But they were contained sounds, sounds that were predictable, sounds that could be regulated at some level. With the election of Lincoln, the the volume is turned up gently but significantly in Charleston. And then with succession, that volume is turned up even more. And you have hundreds of more voices in Charleston than you had before. And they're beginning to clamor. They're beginning to clamor for independence. They're beginning to clamor uh, for a different way of life. And then I take the story through to... Um, what eventually becomes the bombardment of, of Fort Sumter. And the volume then increases even more. Is as I'm trying to sort of turn up the volume on, on the soundscape of, of Charleston uh, in really what is an eight- or nine-month period. And by the time the barrage is unleashed on Fort Sumter, we have an unprecedented volume, an unprecedented level of sound, walls of sound, that uh, aren't just heard but shake the very foundations, not just of the fort but of, of the city itself. And nobody had heard that level of noise before. The artillery shells, there were so many, screaming, uh, bombarding. The, the loudest sound that people had heard prior to that on a regular basis would have been thunder. Thunder. But well, not not this kind of sound, not at that level. Well, and, and of course, Charleston did not allow steam engines within the city limits. That's right. So, so it is possible, I suppose, that somebody who had fought in uh, earlier wars would have heard that kind of the shriek of artillery, uh, but not on that scale, not on that scale. Well, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things that individuals looking at the Civil War have pointed out. It's, it's the scale of what, what happened. 
mid-19th century technology, but still using pretty much 18th century battle tactics. That's right. That's right. Um, Which is is why you've got the slaughter, which would increase World War I as the Civil War taken a step further. I had the wonderful pleasure this last summer of being in the Imperial War Museum and just after their World War I exhibit opened and stage after stage I kept saying, this reminds me of the trench warfare in the Virginia Theater after 1863 as the line stabilized from Fredericksburg and Petersburg and, you know, and soldiers would write songs about their bugs and the mud, the gore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some incredible stories that that uh, Tracy Power has in, in Lee's Miserables about a young South Carolinian writing home about so-and-so next to him had been shot and pieces of brain and blood were spattered all over mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not the sort of thing that people, were, folks back home were used to getting. No, no, and I, I think that, that again, that, that comparison to the Great War um, is not, it's not unreasonable. You know, there is a sense at which, you know, at the beginning of the Civil War, there was a, a naive expectation that this would be a short, almost gentlemanly hey, affair. Hey, the governor of South Carolina said it was going to be over. A, th- a lady's thimble full of blood. I mean, any, you know, any Southern boy can beat 10 Yankees with, with one hand tied behind his back. That's right. I mean, that was, that was the... That was the assumption. Yeah. That was the assumption. And, of course, that assumption proved to be catastrophically wrong and it proved to be catastrophically wrong because America, especially in the North, was just about to embark on an age of industrialization that would, was unprecedented in world history. I mean, it made even the British experiments look quite modest. And as that was at the very moment in time, the North, the Union, was able uh, to reconfigure that industrial imperative into a martial imperative. And that ability modernized this war in a way that people really hadn't anticipated. And that's why that technology of death that I referred to earlier was so powerful. There was really just one intention and one intention only, and that was to kill as many people as quickly as possible. Whether we're talking about munitions, the Gatling gun, Mm -hmm. but also the the shells, the, the grape, the canister, which could literally mow down an entire line and, of course, by the end of the war, um, and, of course, historians debate whether or not this was a, a total war, but it seems to me that by the end of the war, once the decision had been made to march through the southern heartland, uh, it had become a total war. And as a total war, it had to be a full sensory experience because of its totality, the desire to crush and the intention to crush the psychological support for this war inevitably involved a kind of willing denigration and humiliation of the southern civilian population, making them hear war for the first time, making them feel the the hard hand of war. I mean, literally, with troops raiding plantations, uh, abusing people physically, um, starving them, taking their food from them, taking them their, from them their potable water. These were obviously efforts to maintain a very large moving army, but they were also efforts to crush resistance. Well, which on the home front actually had already begun to, but even before Sherman, things were looking pretty bad. I mean, in Columbia, Wade Hampton's home was broken into and anti-war graffiti was scrawled on the walls. Mm-hmm. The militia were called up because Sherman was in Georgia and people refused to respond. Mm-hmm. And Emma Conte's diary recounts a lot of this. Uh, and her description of Main Street before Sherman gets there, uh, because rioters had broken into the merchant stores and things that had not been available for a year, flour, cornmeal, luxury goods, but just spread everywhere. Yeah, people felt this war long before uh, Sherman came, to be sure. But when he did come, they heard him before they saw him. I mean, you have the, the tramp of troops, thousands of them, and then they smell him long after he's gone. I mean, you think about the refuse, the garbage, the fecal matter that is left in Colombia when those troops leave. It is deeply unpleasant, but his presence is still felt long after he he has left. Uh, And that, too, is part of the humiliation of war. When you've got one-third of the city burned, Mm -hmm. any time it rains, the lingering smell of 
burned wood plaster fabric. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's uh, the the worst kind of scent in a way because it lingers. Think about just when you're burning wood in your own backyard, how long the smell of that smoke stays in your clothes. Now think about that on a massive scale. And when you don't have access to ready water to wash your clothes or perfume to to cloud or cloak the stench, you're going to smell Sherman's presence on you for weeks. That odor would have gotten into everyone's home. That's right. That's right. And there was no 24-hour dry cleaning to take care of. It must have been absolutely suffocating. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's get to some of the other. Uh, Senses. We've talked about taste. We've talked about sound and 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 smell. What about touch? So touch is, um, I think, in a way, this might be the most poignant chapter of the book because I examine an event that has no or very few written records attached to it, but I think is terribly important for revealing the importance of touch during the Civil War. And that event is the sinking of the H.O. Hundley submarine. Bear in mind that in antebellum America, there were certain protocols of touch, especially for white men. Uh, White men shook hands, but they weren't really accustomed to living or being in terribly close quarters, especially elite white men, but also poor white white men. Uh, There were other skins in the South that were treated with contempt, and those were the skins of the slaves. Those skins could be beaten, they could be whipped, they could be punished. But white skins weren't really subject to that same degree of violation. So what we have in the context of the H.L. Hunley submarine is a sort of tactile sacrifice by the eight men who voluntarily crammed themselves in to this 40-foot-long, 48-inch-high, 42-inch-wide uh, submarine, this mm-hmm. piece of Confederate technology. And if you look at that submarine, and I was lucky enough to go down to Charleston to the Warren Lash Conservation Center and talk to the uh, marine archaeologists there and examine the the submarine itself, you realize how incredibly small that space is. And these weren't small men. These eight men weren't tiny. Now, some of them were diminutive, but there are a couple that were either at or over six foot tall. And they had to be. They had to be quite strong because it was a hand-propelled submarine. And down the middle of the submarine ran a crankshaft, and that was how this thing was powered. To do that, these men were rubbing up against one another. Um, Their skin was being um, bruised, being blistered. One chap carved out the shape of his knuckles in a wooden slat that was opposite his crank to spare his knuckles because they were always being hit and damaged. So what you have then are these, these... eight white men, not all of whom were from the South, but some of them were, um, going into a submarine that had already sunk twice, killing many of its crew members. There must have been the stench of death on that submarine. But on the night of the uh, 17th of February, 1864, they go into the murky, cold waters of Charleston Harbor, and their job is very simple, audacious, Their job is to plant essentially a mine, a torpedo, that is connected to a very long shaft at the front of the Hunley. And their their job is to plant that in the guts of the USS Housatonic, which is part of the blockade of Charleston Harbor. And the USS Housatonic was a modern ship. This was a, a powerful ship, something not to be underestimated. What the H.O. Hunley submarine did was rely on stealth technology as it was understood at the time. It relied on not being seen, and it relied on not being heard. Its principal technology was the technology of touch, because that torpedo had to be planted by way of a kind of long hand, if you will, a medieval joust into the Housatonic. And then, of course, it was a hand-powered machine. So... The Hunley does this, and it manages to plant the torpedo, destroying the Housatonic. And we don't know why the Hunley sank that night. We do know, though, that when it was eventually brought to the surface 136 years later, that those men, those eight men, were found at their stations. There was not a great deal of mixing of skeletons. 
There was no obvious attempt to escape that submarine. There was no obvious clambering over one another in desperation. Perhaps that's what the, the, we don't know why. Perhaps they were concussed. But perhaps they just stayed at their station and awaited their death. So those hands in this tiny, cramped compartment, the closest of possible physical worlds, they died alone. And the first time that those bodies were touched was 136 years later. Mm-hmm. That really, to me, is the story of touch. That is an extremely moving story. But if you read the accounts, Mary Chestnut is good at this, and, and others of the women who served as nurses or worked in the various way stations and hospitals, they they were doing things, they were touching things that in pre-war society north or south just simply would not have ever been thought about or permissible. Uh, that's right. So th- that's a very good point. The protocols of touch were gendered as, w- as well as linked to race and freedom. And you have nurses who, there's a, there's a very awful account of a nurse at Gettysburg who does her very best to tiptoe through the dead bodies so no part of her body touches. And then she realizes this is pointless because I'm going to be touching these bodies at some point in some capacity. And they hadn't simply not expected to have to deal with limbs, uh, guts, blood, the smell, the feel of blood. Uh, this was a, a very uh, uh, unanticipated engagement with touch. The uh, Wayside Hospital here in Columbia was staffed by, every day there were regular shifts. Mary Chestnut and others have left very detailed records. And they bathed men, they tended their wounds, they fed them, they wrote letters. We know that at least 75,000 soldiers passed through that Wayside mm-hmm. Hospital during the war. Now, that is an intimacy with strangers that would never have been allowed before. That's right. And that's an, another good example of scale, right, and and the need to suspend protocols of touch and ways of touching. And I also think, you know, to go back to your earlier point about clothing, uh, these people were used to relatively fine clothing, clothing that caressed the skin, didn't rub the skin, clothing that felt comfortable, that was warming, or sometimes um, uh, enabled them to feel cooler uh, in the summer. The war alters clothing considerably. Uh, so that people's access to fine clothing is limited. And skin that's accustomed to being caressed gently is now rubbed raw. Uh, this isn't just the soldiers on the field, many of whom who don't have boots, whose feet are raw. Let's talk about people forget that. And this isn't just the, the South where the soldiers did not have boots, but in the North, the shoddy mm-hmm. equipment, mm-hmm. the boots melted in the first rain. Yeah. So soldiers were going barefoot. They were. They were. And there are lots of accounts of, of soldiers talking about how their boots um, do disintegrate quite quickly off their feet and how their feet have to harden. Um, and this is true for Sherman's March especially. And there are some very touching stories about this where a Union um, soldier who is barefooted, it's cold, his feet are cracked and blistered and bloody, a slave comes up to him and offers his, offers him his pair of boots um, because even the slaves recognized that this was somehow out of place, uh, somehow wrong, that, that human skin shouldn't be treated with that kind of contempt. And that's presumably because slaves had experienced that kind of contempt themselves. Of course, slaves were shot. In many, I mean, that's one thing that folks were importing into Charleston on a regular basis was, and they would call them slave shoes. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they were designed to be hardier, I suppose, and that kind of thinking probably didn't go into the sort of manufacturing of, of Union shoddy clothing um, as much as it should. And those troops paid a price. Mm-hmm. Uh, they paid a price of almost perpetual cold, um, perpetual numbness. There are, there are accounts from uh, folks on Sherman's March that just talk about the bone-chilling cold, how they can never rid themselves of it. But even during the summer, the opposite applies. They're extremely hot. These, these uniforms keep heat in. 
Uh, they're wool. They're wool. And they are very, very difficult to be comfortable in. Um, and that applies even during in camp and not necessarily in the battlefield. Then there are things that we just take for granted. Um, dust. Dust is a very powerful form of experience. If you look at First Bull Run, you know, it's a dusty environment. Uh, all of the soldiers, Confederate or Union, choke on the dust, unable to see clearly through the dust, the smoke. This is a deeply disorienting experience. The grit gets in your eyes. You feel the battlefield literally in your body. And, of course, there was no nice shower at the end of the battle. There's no nice shower there. There might be some creeks, but um, who's going to, to linger in a creek where, with the possibility of being shot? You see, time is of the essence. There is a great deal of pressure on these men. And uh, what we take for granted, well, they would not recognize our world, just as it's very hard for us to recognize theirs. You know, it's interesting when you, you talk about the sanitized world in which we live, but most folks today in the 21st century don't realize that our sanitized world, particularly for men in terms of deodorants and that sort of thing, is a post-World War II phenomenon. Men didn't wear deodorants pretty much before. You know, Eugene Walter has a wonderful description of going into lawyer's office in, in Mobile in August, and they talk about, by noonday, the goatee smell of mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way it was. That, that's entirely right. Now, this, this movement towards personal deodorization was a long time in the making, and there were sort of experiments, but principally among women for perfume. But in the 19th century, people did start to wash more often, but nothing approaching what we do today. I mean, bear in mind, there's no indoor plumbing, right? I mean, even when I was growing up, my my grandmother, uh, who was not a a wealthy lady, she was very working class, she had an outhouse. So the the, the toilet was at the bottom of the garden. Uh, That would be more akin to the 19th century experience than it would be to ours. Actually, in 1950, there were tens of thousands of households in Colombia that did not have indoor plumbing. And going, so you had to go out in the cold uh, to, to walk down to the bottom of the garden or wherever it's located. That's the kind of exposure that I think is more typical of the mid-19th century. Mark, you've been working on, on sensory history for a while, but in, in particular in this book, is there anything that especially grabbed you? I mean, your a favorite story or a real surprise when you finally put the manuscript together? Uh, well, um, I, I suppose the surprise, if it, if it is such a thing, um, was my willingness to write a different kind of book, for me anyway. I'm, I'm used very much to writing academic books, which you know I'm very happy to do, and it's, it's what I'm trained to do. But this project required a different narrative technique. This required me to re-narrate something that lots of people know a great deal more about than I ever will, the Civil War. But to re-narrate it through the senses requires a willingness to suspend some of the categories for uh, academic writing and to engage what you think the average reader will enjoy. And that, to me, was the biggest challenge in writing this book, to write something that is, at one level, very depressing. Um, It's not a pleasant story, but to write it in a way that engages. Well, it it does that. And if you don't mind my saying so, I told you this ahead of time. With this book, I think Mark Smith found his voice. Well, you're you're kind to say that. you, you, You have written many books whether it's about time or slavery, everything you've written has been informative. And you say they're academic, and yes, they are, but this book, from the cover, and I, as soon as I got it, I wrote you that you know this, this grabbed me. But then reading it, you have found your voice, and there's nothing wrong with writing for folks outside the academy. In fact, if more people did, they might better understand the academy and what folks who have their PhDs and professorships 
really do. When you write for one another, you might sell 100 copies. And, you know, there are other, you know, you're not the first to do this, but, you know, you think about James McPherson and Jim Rourke and, and others who can write so that people can read their books. Mark Smith, this time, you not only wrote, but like I say, there is a voice here that just comes through loud and clear. And whether you're dealing with the gore of Gettysburg or the starvation of Vicksburg, you tell a great story. Well, thank you, Walter. I appreciate that. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Um, I suppose, ironically, uh, a, a compliment that I wouldn't ordinarily entertain, but one that would might go very well for this book, is that it stinks. And I'd be quite happy to uh, accept that in- endorsement. Okay. Well, Mark Smith, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of South Carolina and author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. What an interesting topic, the senses how they were altered, how they were changed, how they were sharpened by the experience of the soldiers and civilians in the United States, but especially in the American South during the Civil War. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, and vision. It's quite a different way of looking at the American Civil War, and it's one that touches the human condition. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.